From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Starting, though, talking about a story that we first started chatting about a few weeks ago. That is when we heard about the B.C. government going after a couple and demanding they explain where they got the money to purchase a home. This was the first use of B.C.'s new unexplained wealth order. That's the legislation intended to combat money laundering. It puts the onus on alleged money launderers to explain where their money came from. Well, in that case, the government is focusing on a home on Salt Spring Island worth around $2 million. And the unexplained wealth order legislation is being used once again. This time, the focus is a U.K. citizen who previously lived in Malta. And the B.C. government is asking for an explanation as to where that person got millions of dollars that were then parked in a Vancouver Lawyers Trust account. So joining me now to talk more about this is Jeffrey Simser, a lawyer as well as a leading expert on asset forfeiture and anti-money laundering law, also a former legal director with the Ontario Ministry of the Attorney General, also the author of several books on these subjects. Jeffrey Simser, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Can you explain a little bit more about the unexplained wealth order, this kind of legislation and how it works? Yeah, of course. So so an unexplained wealth order is, is best understood as part of something larger. So what's really going on is at the end of the day, BC is seeking a civil forfeiture order. And within that, there's a number of things they can do. They can ask a court to freeze property. And in this case, they're they're asking for an early explanation as to where money came from. But, you know, the onus is, at at least at this point, is on the director of the Civil Forfeiture Program to, to prove to the court they need to get that order. The onus isn't on the owner of the Salt Spring Island place, at least initially. And then once they prove they, could, they need to have the order, then the court issues it, and then we go into the next phase. Is it, though, does there need to be a set of guidelines in that there are going to be scenarios where somebody is the homeowner and maybe it doesn't make sense based on their profession or based on their financial situation, but that doesn't automatically mean there's something criminal happening. So are are there checks and balances in place that a government, in this case the B.C. government, can't just look at something and think, oh, this doesn't look right, we're going to make you explain where that money came from? Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's a whole bunch of safeguards in here. The first the first and foremost is it's not the BC government doing anything as much as it's they're asking the court. So we have an independent court that's going to look at the case and decide where where it's going. And and the second thing is this actually came out of this uh, this unexplained wealth order process came out of the Cullen Commission about a year and a half ago. It was the 101st recommendation. And so what happens is the director has to go before the court. And they have statutory guidelines that they have. So it's not going to happen randomly. Someone in, in, you know, in Burnaby, we just want you to explain how you got your house. The director is going to have to come in, show certain thresholds, show certain tests, and show that there's some uh, indication that there's something really wrong going on here. Not just that someone ought not to have a, an expensive house, but there really is a connection here that's worth exploring. And it's certainly the case in both of the cases, Salt Spring and the Lawyer's Trust account, there's links into a, to a securities fraud that starts in Switzerland. So they're not fishing here. They're, they're, they're very, being very prudent and careful about what they're asking the court to help them with. How are governments being made aware of these cases or these potential situations where laundered money might have been used? 
Yeah, so this is re- it's a really good question. So what, what's happened is the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States went after a guy named Roger Knox in Switzerland. And what he was doing was he created something called the Silverton Platform. And what that was designed to do was to basically evade uh, securities laws. It, it sort of split up and it hid ownership and it allowed for pump and dump scams and that sort of thing. Roger Knox pled guilty in the United States, and out of the information from the investigation that the SEC had, they came up to D.C. and they said, look, here's a property. We show the money coming through the trails and ending up in Salt Spring Island in the lawyer's trust account, um, and it, it really requires an explanation because that money was part of a criminal um, uh, enterprise, part of securities fraud, and it, you ought to follow that up. So that, that disclosure would go in and it would go to the director of civil forfeiture. They'd look at it. They'd check what they had in terms of the disclosure and say, hey, yeah, I think this needs to merit a little bit of a further investigation. And are there other countries or other jurisdictions where this type of legislation has already been in place? Yeah, there are. It depends on how you define it. There's actually almost 100 countries that have some form of unexplained wealth order. But for, for what BC looked at, they followed a couple of models, and, and Colin had looked at this in the commission. So Manitoba has one. It's called a preliminary disclosure order. The United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand. So the countries that we kind of look to as similar legal systems, they all have this kind of, kind of a process. And the thing to understand is that what the, the director's asking the court for is information they'd be entitled to later anyway as just part of the litigation. They're getting it just earlier than they might normally get it. And one other question, with, with people who might be involved in money laundering or other criminal activity, they do tend to often be a step ahead in knowing that this legislation is there. Is this the answer to this or is it one tool that can be used? Yeah, if this isn't a panacea, this is not going to solve everything that's going on out there. But it is an important answer. And I think when you look at jurisdictions that have successfully gone after money launderers, there's two things. The first is they use civil asset forfeiture. Because what launderers do, and you can see it in, in what we, the little we know around these cases, they use shell companies, they're in, you know, in Panama, and well, that kind of thing. So it's very hard sometimes to follow the money even harder to convict someone as you're trying to follow that trail. So, and then the, the unexplained wealth order is just part of that. But it's not gonna, it's not a magic bullet. Um, and it's, I think, the way it's been set up in the BC legislation, it's designed to be used sparingly and only on rare and kind of exceptional cases. And and Salt Spring and the Lawyers Trust account are two such cases, which they're kind of extraordinary cases. And uh, and so I think they're this is where they should be using this kind of a tool. All right, Jeffrey Simser, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Thanks for your time, Jill. Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. Well, you may have heard this story in the news. The Canadian Transportation Agency says it has issued a $97,500 penalty to Air Canada. This is for violating the accessible transportation for persons with disabilities regulations. The penalty is for several violations, and the agency saying that on August 30th, Air Canada failed to assist a user of a wheelchair to disembark the plane. And 
uh, we've talked about this story in the past. The passenger has cerebral palsy, can't move his legs, and he was forced to disembark on his own. As well, the CTA says Air Canada failed to ensure its personnel periodically checked in on the passenger while he was waiting in the terminal. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit more about this is Gabor Lukacs, the founder of airpassengerrights.ca. Gabor, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Good afternoon. Uh, what is your response to this when you uh, see this story and the fact that uh, the CTA, the Canadian Transportation Agency, has issued this fine? The amount of the fine is adequate and reflects the seriousness of the airline's conduct. However, uh, the timing and the paucity of such fines remains a troubling issue. I'm very pleased on the one hand that the government is finally taking some enforcement action, something meaningful against the airlines. But it is yet to be seen whether this is going to be a pattern of cracking down on such abuse of passengers or just a one time of publicity stunt before the holidays. Uh, we got the acknowledgement from Air Canada back in November, uh, acknowledging that it had, in fact, violating, uh, violated the disability regulations in Canada. Uh, there was an apology as well, and uh, people will likely remember this story. Uh, he was forced to drag himself off that flight in Las Vegas. Uh, does this show, though, that airlines should now know that, yes, you can acknowledge it and apologize, but there is still going to be a financial penalty? Well, that's an interesting question, and I'm not sure. To, it, I don't think that there's any link here between the apology or absence thereof and, and the, and the uh, penalty that was issued. Penalty should always be issued, and that's a problem that in general, in most cases when passengers' rights are being violated in this country, the government just does nothing except perhaps uh, shake a finger at the airlines. So um, it's a very positive development that uh, thanks to the massive media coverage and some political will, the system appears in this one case as if it was working, but it is yet to be seen whether it is going to be actually a pattern. What Canada needs is a systemic, consistent enforcement of all violations, all abuses, not just this one case. Right, because in this particular case, again, because uh, the gentleman who had to drag himself off the plane, because I think he went public, uh, he was telling his story, he was making sure his story got out there, uh, it got a lot of reaction. But I think one of the questions was, well, this is one person who's telling his story. How, how far spread is this or how often does something like this? Maybe not to this extreme, but how often are these rules, these regulations violated? We do know through informal sources that these regulations, these rights are being violated on a very regular basis, just that most passengers' story don't go public and uh, the airlines so far have been able to get away with a lot of abuse of persons with disabilities. People just don't have the energy to fight this and the government has not been willing to actually take firm enforcement actions. My fear is that, and I hope I'm proven to be wrong, is that after this publicity stunt um, come next year and we're going to see the same type of abuse and no reaction against the airlines. I really want to challenge the government and the Canadian Transportation Agency to prove me wrong and to keep issuing hefty fines to airlines in every occasion that an airline violates a passenger's rights, whether it is abilities or otherwise.
And how important is it? I mean, ideally, it would be great if these violations didn't happen and that that it stopped. But how important is it that passengers also know their rights and know what what the airlines, what they're required to do under law and, and hold them to account if they don't? Knowing your rights is very important. And unfortunately, because the government is not doing what it's supposed to do in the vast majority of the cases, it is... It, it is left to the passenger to, uh, to enforce their rights, and it may mean taking the airline to small claims court. The importance of these fines, if they were issued regularly and in this proper amount, I mean, in this case, the amount was right on, in the right ballpark of, of how severe of penalties needed to get an airline's attention. But if these penalties were issued on a far more regular basis, then passengers would not have to go to small claims courts because airlines would be very eager to comply. Does it also point to, and I, I don't actually know the answer to this question, the fine of $97,500 that the Canadian Transportation Agency issued, where does that money go? It goes to the uh, public purse, and, and that is something completely separate and apart from any kind of compensation that may be owed to the passenger under um, a complaint procedure for their breach of their human dignity and so on. And that is that is a, a separate story, uh, and um, I would be actually quite concerned if if um, the airline didn't have to pay the fine in full on account of some payment to the passenger, because the two things under Canadian legislation, the the fine and compensation to passengers, uh, are two completely separate matters. Right. So are there other avenues then in this case? Because like you said, this this isn't going as compensation to the passenger. If a passenger feels that they haven't been fully compensated or that the issue hasn't been dealt with fairly, do they have any other avenues? The passenger can certainly sue the airline for uh, damages. They can also, there is a process before the Canadian Transportation Agency for disability-related human rights violations through which the passenger can seek also monetary compensation, which would be money going into their pockets as opposed to the public purse. The two processes are separate, and unfortunately in the past there has been an attempt to mix the two, and that's not something that Parliament authorized. And uh, Gabor, well that we have you, uh, just uh, moving a little bit away from this story, uh, we were just talking with the uh, CEO at uh, Vancouver International Airport. Today is going to be the vi- busiest day of the season there. I know that other airports are going to be very busy as well. What do people need to know as far as uh, this time of year, especially because so many people are traveling about delays and passenger rights and what they're entitled to if things do go a little bit sideways? The airline has to inform you about any delay or cancellation in a timely manner and also about the reasons for the delay and cancellation. And if, uh, unfortunately, Canada has a very dysfunctional, inferior protection regime for passengers compared to the European Union's gold standard, in Canada, if a uh, uh, flight is uh, delayed or canceled for reasons within the carrier's control and not required for safety reasons, then you are owed lump sum compensation for your inconvenience, but only in those situations. And of course, the airline will claim that everything is outside their control. And even if it is within their control, it's safe at the issue rated so they don't have to pay compensation. So there are lots of conflicts of this nature. However, whenever you experience a problem at the airport, make sure to document, take photos, videos, audio recordings, save screenshots on your on your uh, smartphone of any kind of information relating to your flights, and uh, and then seek compensation from the airline. If they refuse to pay compensation, 
they have to give you clear reasons what happened at your flight if it was a maintenance issue they have to tell you which aircraft it was what were the reasons what type of maintenance issues were with the aircraft and if the airline do, does not provide those uh, reasons then it should be a red flag for you that they're hiding something and you should pursue it in small claims court all right gabor lukaks always good to have you on the show thank you so much for your time today thank you very much for having me Thanks so much for being with us. So, well, we are going to talk more about finances and issues we saw this year, what it's going to look like with interest rates going into 2024, as well a bit more on the HSBC, uh, the sale of the Canadian operations to RBC and what impact that might have. Right now, though, a bit of financial news, but also taking a look at financial hardships and how those are having an impact when it comes to pet adoptions and pet surrender here in BC. And Susan Patterson is joining me now, founder of the Thank Dog I Am Out Rescue Society. Susan, great to have you on the program. Hi, Jill. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to join us. And before we talk a bit more about that, I'm curious, how has the year been for you? I know there have been changes in where dogs can come from and adoptions and such. How has, how has it been for your rescue society? Well, it was um, it was a very, very different year. We focused more on trying to help our local community uh, with regards to rehoming and um, supporting people that were struggling um, so that they would not be faced with surrendering their pets. So it was a very somewhat quiet year for us with regards to importing dogs that were uh, in need um, and really focusing on, on you know, our, our front yard, backyard dogs that, that really needed help. And um, it was, uh, it's been a very, very strange year. We, we, for some weird reason, have a good feeling about 2024. I don't know, <laughs> maybe because tw- 2023 was so, or, you know, the last couple of years have been so crazy, but uh, we're hoping for a more positive year coming up. I was looking at some stories, and I know a lot of the statistics and numbers are coming out of the United States when it comes to more and more families surrendering their pets to shelters, saying economically they just can't afford it anymore. I know there have been local stories like that as well, but has that been an issue uh, here in BC or in Canada as far as people just not being able to afford their pets? Oh, 100%. You know, we've been trying to support uh, our community with with food banks and things like that so that people are not faced with surrendering. But because of the economic uh, changes and just the high cost of living and the food insecurities, people are, are really moving out of their homes where they are allowed to have pets and being forced to surrender them because they can't find accommodations that they can take their pets with them. We saw a lot of that in 2023. We saw a lot of um, People, just heartbroken people, um, you know, with that horrible decision. We didn't see a lot of um, what we saw in the U.S., and we, we do, we are heavily involved with the situation in California, which is a disaster. But um, what we did see in California was people just dumping their COVID pets. So we were finding a lot of stranded COVID pets. Um, but here it was, it's more heart wrenching. Um, I'm just talking about our local community. Uh, People do not want to do that. They are opting to reach out to us privately and and we can help them as much as we can. So um, 
it's a little more um, difficult, I've noticed, this year in particular for the um, people that are struggling with insecurities to actually um, come to us. But they know they can reach out to us privately, and that's how we've sort of seen the last six months uh, with servicing our community is just privately. Right. And, and why is that, do you think, that it's becoming more difficult for people to reach out? I think... Um, we started our food banks in 2020. We've done five. We did. We served over 500 families in 2022. In 2023, we've done a number of them this year, and we've only the last one we did. We only served about 250 families. But the difference was that we're noticing. I, I just heard this new term called uh, insecurity isolation. So it's actually a demographic of people who are struggling to the point where they won't go to Christmas parties because they're kind of feeling uncomfortable that they have to actually buy a gift. They don't go out to uh, have drinks with friends. They're, they're trying to cut areas without actually having to sort of, you know, mention to anyone that they are struggling. But when they know they can reach out to us privately for food uh, and supplies for their pets, um, we have seen that in 2023, which I didn't see at all in 2022. So it seems like uh, the demographics may have shifted a bit, um, you know, and I just think it's affecting everybody. Right. And, and you mentioned, uh, Susan, uh, food banks, and we often talk about food banks and obviously the need for people. And we've seen the greater demand, I think the, the most demand we've ever seen on food banks and people turning to them. Uh, but like you said as well, having to make these really difficult decisions because your your animals, your pets, as you know, they're part of your family. And even if things have, have turned negative when it comes to your finances, you still want to keep them part of your family. Where do food banks for pets come in there or as far as are, are they becoming more and more popular or how does that work well i don't actually know i, I mean i just know about us because mm. we we've done five of them and and um this year we were fortunate enough to have uh the Tyson store sponsor a lot of the food products so we actually were able to provide a lot of food um but i think like i don't i know I'm pretty sure the BCSPCA has an, an outreach program where you can go to get food from them. And I'm pretty sure there's another pause for hope, I think, in the downtown uh, core has. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sort of at a loss. I don't really know. I hope that if anyone of our rescue organizations in the province, they have any of their adopters reaching out to them and saying, I'm struggling. I'm quite confident that those organizations will help them, provide them with some food supplies. And I would think that that's probably what I hope is happening. Um, I just know with our food banks, you know, we, we have no no questions. No, There's no trick. There's no catch. We really reached out to the film industry this year because not only did they suffer during COVID, they barely got their feet back on the ground when the strike hit. So we provided a lot of the young people in the film industry who have large animals, large dogs, with whatever they needed. We basically said, pull your car up, and we filled their car up with whatever they needed. And that's, uh, that, that's uh, made us feel great because that's an industry that really needed help. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned as well that, that uh, for, for some reason, uh, looking ahead 2024, you have a more positive feeling about 2024. Uh, why is that, do you think? Um, I'm cautiously <laughs> optimistic that I, I, 
you, I think all of our volunteers are kind of excited to sort of, you know, we have a new normal now, so we will be definitely bringing dogs, you know, into the organization for adoption. Um, but I think we have a really solid um, uh, relationship with our community, and we want to carry on and, and carry on with our food banks all year round. It doesn't have to just be Christmas. So I think everybody's feeling pretty stoked about being able to just keep providing, but on a larger level than we have for 2023, because that was just a really kind of weird year. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully that is what we see uh, as we go into the new year. Susan, it's always great to catch up with you. Thank Thank you. you so much for being here. Thank you, Jill. Have a wonderful holiday. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.